Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. This week, we have another podcast where I am a guest on someone else's podcast. And this one might sound a little bit odd from the description in that it is a podcast about protecting your IP on Amazon called Owning the Buy Box uh, by Dave Cooper from a brand protection company called IP Secure. But uh, don't stop listening just yet. Based on that description, the conversation, I think, is really, really interesting. If you know anything at all about me and TechDirt, you'll know that I am, I would say, extremely skeptical of brand protection companies and uh, the stuff that they work on. However, Dave reached out to me originally. uh, He just wanted to talk about an important recent legal decision regarding Amazon and Section 230 that he thought would be interesting to his audience. And in talking about it before we we recorded the podcast, he mentioned that he had first discovered TechDirt about a decade ago when I had actually criticized the uh, brand protection company that he worked for at the time. Uh, And he realized that uh, my criticisms were correct and the company that he was working for was wrong. Uh, And so it was sort of uh, interesting and enlightening discussion. And then this podcast uh, turned into a similarly fun discussion about not just this one uh, important legal decision and about Section 230, but we also talk a fair bit about what I think are the problems in the brand protection space as well. Uh, And uh, it was really kind of interesting to talk about with somebody who runs a company in that space to get his perspective as well. So I hope that you will enjoy the conversation and we'll be back next week with uh, an original podcast for TechDirt. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If you're listening in today, I think you're in for a real treat on this episode of Owning the Buy Box. Uh, I'm Dave Cooper, your host. I'm also the founder and CEO uh, of IP Secure. And today I'm really excited about this episode because uh, we we have a guest on who I think is a wealth of knowledge about, frankly, everything internet related, but a lot of the topics that we talk about on the show um, that that touch on issues that brand owners face that people selling on Amazon deal with. Um, so there is sort of universally felt and and he has a lot of really great opinions. Uh, the New York Times refers to our guest as uh, being in the heads of tech CEOs. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure we could get a better authority on some of these topics than uh, Mike Masnick, who is, of course, the founder and editor of, of Tech Dirt. Mike, thanks for for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, I mean, you know, on the show, we talk a lot about uh, brand protection issues in general. Right. And and we try to kind of tie it into business elements, like how is it impacting, you know, your revenue and your customer experience and, and you know, not necessarily tactics as much, but I think strategically people struggle with um how to deal with a lot of these issues, especially when it's on platforms that they don't control, whether that's, you know, an Amazon or a Facebook or, or whatever. And I was riveted by the article that you wrote recently about, um, you know, the, the court rejecting a a lawsuit that, um, was a, was a pretty sensitive topic, um, relative, right. To, to, to some of the products being sold there. And I want to dig into that at 2.30 and and some of your thoughts around that, which are just riveting. But I know our listeners are very interested. I mean, you've been writing. I mean, you wrote like 50,000 articles, I think they said, (laughs) since 1998. Yes. What made you start Tech Dirt? Like, how did it all get going originally? Uh, So, you know, it's kind of funny because it's not like there was some grand plan here. Um, (laughs) You know, I... What really happened was that I was in business school. I was getting an MBA uh, and I wanted to get a job um, in having with 
having something to do with the internet uh, after I after I graduated, and I didn't really have any relevant experience to do so. So I figured if I <laughs> if I was writing about it and and writing about the internet, uh, that it would show a sort of passion for the internet. This is the early days. This is 96, 97. But you were in business school. It wasn't like you were studying journalism or, or anything. No, right. I was, I was okay. in business school. And, yeah. and, you know, it was sort of, you know, mid-90s, early days of, of the World Wide Web and, and the sort of spreading of the internet and, you know, the earliest days of e-commerce. And there were lots of discussions going on about it. And I was just sort of generally interested in those things. And so I thought if I started writing about it, you know, it would... It would really be, you know, something I could include with a resume to try and get a job. Right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I sort of lucked out in some ways that I had some really, really amazing professors um, at business school who were, um, two, two in particular, who were incredibly forward looking and, and forward thinking about the Internet and about technology mm-hmm. and about the, the impact of it and how it should work and sort of the value and importance of the Internet and, and certain types of innovation. And I really gravitated to those two professors in particular. Um, and so then I, I really, you know, when I started, you know, at first I just sort of started writing about what was going on on the internet, sort of with a business twist because I was getting my MBA. Um, but I, I really started to view stories through the lens of what I had learned from those two professors in terms of, you know, how innovation really should work. What is the power of the internet itself? Um, and, and so I just sort of had this starting framework, um, for how to, how to view different stories. And, and that's what I started writing about. And it, it seemed to catch on, <laughs> uh, people seemed to really like it and it got passed around a lot. I originally started just sending it to, to other business school students, uh, and they passed it on and, and, you know, business schools, mostly returning students. So a lot of people would come from industry, including plenty of people who'd come from Silicon Valley. And so they started sending it around and then, the, mm-hmm. you know, it, it started to get more and more attention. Um, and my professors really encouraged me. They said, keep, keep doing this writing stuff. Uh, you know, you're really getting these, these ideas out there and you're, you're, you know, expressing it well. Um, and so, you know, that really made me do it. I, I did then graduate and I did, you know, successfully <laughs> use it to, to get a job uh, at, at, a, at a startup. Uh, and I came, moved out to Silicon Valley and I worked at a startup for about a year. Um, and I got to witness uh, the implosion of a startup from the inside, which was really kind of fascinating mm-hmm. to see. Um, and, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of stories related to that. But sort of as that as that startup collapsed and I was getting more and more um, not depressed, but just, you know, unhappy at at work. Yeah. <laughs> the more sure. I, I was sort of, I, I was effectively wasting my time at work and, and writing, uh, tectored on the side rather than doing, doing yeah. the job. Cause there was nothing, nothing to be interesting. Done, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, eventually I quit, uh, just because I, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't ride the, the crashing ship all the way down to the ground. So I quit and I, I, w- uh, explored doing a couple other startups and, and talked to mm. some folks and everything. And then somebody sat me down and, and said, you, you, you keep writing this Tector thing. You really seem to enjoy it. Like, just focus on that instead. You know, just sort of, you know, you idiot, <laughs> like do this yeah. thing that you, you yeah. love. Um, yeah. And then that was it, you know, from, from then on, you know, it's like 25 years of, of continuing to, to build out Tector and, and do whatever we could to build the business around it that would, you know, allow me to survive. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think um, I remember a time in the late 90s when blogging was like a real profession, right? (laughs) People talked about it as if this was something you could do and make a living doing. Yeah, I was going to say the the funny thing is that, you know, when when I started TechDirt, the word blog uh, didn't exist yet. That that wasn't a thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's how that's how old I am, and that's how that's how early it came to this. So when the word blog came along, like I resisted it for for probably five or six years. Whenever mm. we would would lump TechDirt in as a tech blog, which it it is, right? But like at the time, I was like, no, we're not a blog. Like blog is like this this silly little thing that people are doing. We're something different, right. and that was that was silly. I should have just I should have just you know admitted it. Right. Reality was is you were 
sort of helping to pioneer sort of that whole user generated content space. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but I worked at, at Mark Monitor for a long time in San Francisco and we were often either associated with an article or part of one. And (laughs) I think, and I actually went back and looked and I said, what was the article? So it was 2013 Uh and we did a bunch of bad stuff that year. I mean, you know, let's just, in fairness, uh, I think Mark Bonner is a great company. And and I think at the time, you know, we, we always did things in good faith and stuff, but um, the reality was, is, is people made a lot of mistakes. And, and in particular, I think we did a couple of things. One was we were trying to uh, delist content that was like authorized HBO content. So we were basically sending DMCA notices to Google right. delisting our own clients URLs. Right. right. <laughs> and you just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it happens more often than not, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember, and, and I agree. I mean, I think, I think Mark Monitor was always like well-meaning and, and, and had definitely done some sure. work, but, but like, you know, as with lots of people in that space at times, you know, you, you get too aggressive, right. Or you don't look at the details. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting in some ways, and it gets at some of the other stuff around like section 230 and things like that, where it's like, you know, it's not always easy at first glance to tell with any of this stuff, right? Where it's like, is this infringing? Or oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things that a lot of people think is is really easy, but it's it's not. And that, you know, that works both ways, right? So it works on the on the side of like, you know, Google or YouTube, if they're hosting content, do they know if it's infringing or not? It's it's tough for them to tell, but it's also tough for, I mean, you know, the fa- the most famous story was uh, Viacom, which had its you know decade long lawsuit with YouTube, um, yep. co- copyright, you know uh, lawsuit. At one point, they had to amend the complaint and remove the you know the complaint had hundreds, maybe thousands of videos listed, but they had to remove one hundred of them because, and this was like a year or two into the lawsuit, they realized that like somewhere around a hundred of the videos were actually licensed videos that they that Viacom employees had uploaded themselves that then they were suing YouTube over and they right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you know, it's it's one of these things that I think is is really important. But it was it you know, it was important for me to call out, you know, and I don't remember the exact context of that article, it was a decade ago, but like it was important for me in general to call those things out. Not just not to like just make fun yeah. of Mark Monitor, though that's fun, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but but really totally like to, to highlight just how difficult it is on all sides of this equation. And anyone who's making the assumption that this is obviously infringing in some way, you know, doesn't recognize the the the, the real difficulty in figuring that out. Yeah. Agreed. And uh, insightful. Uh, I mean, I think. Whenever you try to do things like protect your IP at scale, mm-hmm. it's very challenging. You know, something that I learned working at Mark Monitor for 18, 19 years is is it's extremely challenging to do that at scale, do it accurately. Uh, everybody, most people, 99% are operating with in good faith. Um, and 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 so, but, but the issue becomes, it's like, how do you do it at scale, right? And, yeah. and because- if all you're going to do is sort of cherry pick very small, specific scenarios to go out and defend your IP or or protect a customer from something dangerous, then, you know, you're, you're, you're just there's just there's so much of it. Right. You've got to yes. do it at scale. Right. Yeah. And, and 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 it's it's trickier than that, even. I mean, I think that I think you're exactly correct, but I think it's trickier in other ways as well, which is that, you know, protecting IP, you know, leads to, you know, what does that mean exactly? Because it can mean a whole bunch of different things, right? The the problem I think comes in with, with the assumption that protecting IP always means uh, forcing something, you know, some, some misuse of IP down in some way or another, right? And that's, that's where, like, I would, you know, make fun of Mark Monitor and some other brand protection companies for, I think, going overboard, you know, there are cases where obviously that is legitimate and that is the most sensible thing to do. But there are there are often sure. cases where it's like, you know, 
where there is a misuse that is maybe a marginal misuse and is it worth the effort you know will it will it will it will it create backlash in some other way that creates problems you know are there other ways to deal with it i mean there there are numerous cases and i've written about some of these as well at times where it's like somebody is using someone else's ip in some way that is you know most likely infringing but like threatening them, sending some sort of legal threat or a demand letter or something like that turns out to be the exact wrong approach. You know, it obviously depends. There's so much context involved. You know, it could be a friendlier approach uh, makes a lot more sense. Maybe it's something where you can approach someone and say like, hey, like we have a, a basic licensing setup. If you, you know, this use could fit within our licensing regime. Here's the best way to to rectify that as opposed to like the, the threatening or there are ones where it's just a, a more general friendly approach to someone saying like, you know, you might not realize that this is infringing and the way you're doing it. And we would appreciate it if you did it this way, you know, but again, like that's really difficult at scale, you know, like on a small yeah. one-to-one basis, there are ways that you can do that when you're doing it at scale. It's like to understand the context. It's the same thing as like the content moderation challenge that the companies face themselves on the, on the flip side. Um, you know, at scale, you sort of, you have to set up some clear, things and say, like, if we see this, we do that. Um, but that leads to situations where it's not particularly effective and actually can can lead to backlash and, and other problems. Yeah. It's becoming more challenging, I think, as well as these platforms have changed and, yeah. you know, become such a more sort of ingrained part of our everyday lives. I remember when we started 20 years ago and it was like, people were all bent out of shape over, you know, eBay and Craigslist and like their products were getting listed there. And, you know, you'd get the occasional MySpace issue or something like that. But like Facebook wasn't even really a problem or, or I should say a problem was not a significant force right. right yet. And today it's, it's, there are platforms that touch us. I mean, you know, eight hours a day in one way yeah. or another or, or intertwined in our, psyche and in our decision making and our and our everyday lives. And so I feel like in some ways brand owners feel like technology and innovation is moving so rapidly, like I've got to push on the gas when it comes yeah. to trying to shield my consumer from that counterfeit or whatever it is or or some other trademark issue. Um, yeah. that if they're not doing that, you know, then then they sort of are looked at as like not doing enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and no doubt, like in a lot of cases, and obviously this is also context dependent, there are a lot of cases where there are real risks involved if you don't, if you don't, you know, yeah. monitor those things and, and don't take care of it. Um, but, you know, doing it wrong also creates risks. And I, and I feel like that side of the equation doesn't get as much attention. And that's where it leads to, you know, over aggressive uh, attacks and, and takedowns and, and things like that. Like, I don't know if you know, but like a couple of years ago, we, we got a, a brand protection company um, went after us for an article that was highlighting yeah. a, a, a satirical thing. And, 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 and they, that was in 2020, I think. Right. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. around there yeah. time wise. And, uh, you know, and, and we were just like, look, you know, we're writing an article about this thing. We're not selling it. And, and it's satire, you know, uh, beyond everything else or parody. Um and, so did they claim that it like the article had like their copyright admits like our logo or their copyrighted was, material or something? Yeah. It was a, what they could possibly was, claim, you know, it was because what it was, was it was somebody had created a satirical patch um, that was mm. making fun of North Face, the North Face brand. So it has sort of uh, like the North Face logo, but um, with with different different words, you know, it didn't say North Face. It's something right. Like right. Um, <laughs> and and the thing is, like, I think. The, the original story was, I don't think anyone ever actually made or sold that patch. I think they just made, made it or maybe Photoshopped it and put a picture yeah. uh, on, on a photo sharing site. And then that photo got a takedown notice, which was already problematic. So we wrote about that and shared the photo in the story, but that was like a while back. And it was like, you know, a decade later that the brand protection agency threatened us with a lawsuit because of this like 10 year old article that just had a picture of the patch that we had nothing to do with and hadn't sold. Oh <laughs> my like, God. This is, you know, you're, I, I understand the process by which you got here, but again, it's someone, you know, not, not 
taking the time to actually understand what the situation was and sending us a very threatening, a threatening letter. And we had sort of pushed yep. back. And, and in that case, the North Face like reached out to us and apologized because yeah, they they just, yeah, how bad it's it ridiculous. Was. Yeah. So, though a few months later, we got another another notice from that same brand production. <laughs> <laughs> That's com. I mean, that is just beyond almost. It's yeah. comical, you know. Yeah. It's com- but it's also like scary because, you know, uh, like we we just we did an episode of the show recently where we talked about, um, you know, a lot of the lawsuits that are coming out of right. uh, ju- Chicago jurisdiction against you know, sellers on Amazon. And we had a reporter on who talked about it. And it was, it was sort of very similar in that vein where there was like a lot of legit sellers that like just caught in this web because, you know, when you start doing things at scale and mass producing them, whether they're lawsuits or C and D letters or takedowns or whatever, um, to your point, you know, if you're not paying attention to what's going on, then, you know, real stupid things can happen. Uh, And not only stupid things, but things that actually create liability for you as a brand. Yes. Yeah. Which we've seen as well. Who is in your buy box? That's the key question. And the difference between sales growth and brand abuse and revenue loss. Monitoring your buy box is the key to brand protection success on Amazon. At IP Secure, our analytics will drive your behavior. It's not about taking down more sellers, removing more unauthorized listings. It's about knowing who's taking your revenue minute by minute and then adjusting your response appropriately, taking action when necessary and recapturing that revenue. Visit us today, ipsecure.com. Learn how. So, in the, I mean, in the article you wrote recently, um, you know, this tragic story, right, yes. um, of of suicide, you know, using individual products, you know, on Amazon. Um, I mean, you wrote pretty passionately about how you felt like this this legal case, you know, inevitably went the right way in your view. Um, and I personally think this case is a little different than the norm. Okay. I mean, only because I think the individual products in and of themselves are, are innocuous when not combined. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Is that a true assumption on my part? Uh, I I don't know. There are claims on both sides of that. And I, okay. I don't know enough about the specifics yeah. to know for sure. sure. You know, th- there were definitely people arguing that, that this particular is basically Amazon selling a particular chemical compound that was then used for suicide. Um, and... Um, there were claims that there's no like other legitimate use of this particular chemical compound. Ah, uh, okay. Understood. Other, other people have claimed that there is, that there are. Right. Right. Of course. In industrial uses for that particular chemical compound. Um, but you know, you know, it, it, it was definitely there, there were, you know, there are these sort of you know, some forums online that are sort of, you know, very focused on, on suicide and were recommending the use of this particular chemical. Sure. Um, yeah. So it sort of became known more widely as like, you know, uh, if, if you want to end your life, this is a way to do it, which, mm. you know, raises a whole bunch of very, very thorny, you know, ethical, moral questions. Of course. <laughs> beyond, beyond the legal questions. But but certainly, you know, that particular chemical compound was was, you know, had been widely recognized as something that was used frequently for suicide. Um, and now, is this scenario is this in your view, because I'd love for maybe you to help the audience understand like Section 230's initial intent, at least from your perspective. And does does a case like this is this applicable in your view and at least to the original intent of, of, of section 230. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it absolutely is. And, and this is where sort of, I can give you the, the sort of quick overview of, of what yeah, section that'd be great. is, which, which I think is often very misunderstood. Um, mm-hmm. And, and to me, the simplest way of understanding section 230 is that you want to put the legal liability on the party who infused the content or whatever with its illegal properties, whatever is violating the law, who is making it so that it is violating the law? Um, and okay. so 
all that Section 230 is really doing is saying that whichever party, individual, organization infused the content in question with any any violation, that's who is liable for it. So it, it's basically a don't shoot the messenger kind of law that that properly points the liability towards the, the party who, who actually imbued the content with illegality. Um, and would that illegality apply to sort of anything across the board that, you know, based on sort of U.S. code would be looked at as, um, you know, some level of criminal activity? Well, so it gets a little complicated because in, in <laughs> most in most context, everything gets a little complicated. But like yeah, in most contexts, Section Section 230 is about civil liability protection, not criminal Mm-hmm. That's not entirely true, uh, but Section 230 does exempt federal criminal liability. So anything that mm-hmm. is, if, if it's U.S. code, criminal law, Section 230 does not apply at all. There is no protection from Section 230 for, for, for federal criminal law. Um, it does apply to state criminal law, which is a little mm-hmm. bit different. Um, mm-hmm. and, and some people raise concerns about that, but it, it, it does bar state criminal claims. Yeah, but 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 in almost every case, the vast majority, including this particular lawsuit, it, they're civil claims. So it's not the government mm-hmm. against somebody right. for a criminal violation. It's some sort of tort. You know, uh, yes. you know the most the most common Section two thirty one is defamation, right? So the, that's mm-hmm. sort of the quintessential Section two thirty issue is uh, somebody posts something defamatory on Facebook, and I sue Facebook. And the court and Section 230 basically say, no, you don't sue Facebook. You sue the person who actually posted this content, you know, right. which, which which is an important point or, or, you know, created the content, which is an important point because some people have argued incorrectly that Section 230 is this sort of like get out of jail free card and it, it leaves no liability and it leaves people harmed with no recourse. And that's not true because all Section 230 is saying is sue the right party. Don't sue the the platform. We recognize they have they may have a lot of money, and that may be a target that lawyers want to go after. Uh, sure. Don't sue the sue the platform. Sue the person who actually said the the defamation, uh, the defamatory content, or you know whatever else they they did that violated the law. The the simple act of hosting the content and allowing it to to be there doesn't violate the law. Got it. So. I guess I have two two kind of follow ups uh, on that. I mean, and the, and the first one is, um, and it makes sense to me. I, I think the the basis is right. The platform is not the guilty party per se, right? You have to pursue the individual or entity that actually committed the act that you are um, you've been harmed by, whatever that is. What if the platform though is providing anonymity, which yeah, which which does not allow. Right. Uh, uh, a, a potential plaintiff to find out who who they are. Yeah. That, and that is that is the big challenge. And that is one that is that's like the right question to 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 ask. Um, and there's not necessarily an easy answer to that. Now, we do have in the in the commerce space, um, you know, there's there's a, a new law that was just passed last year that effectively is going to. And I, I don't know all the specifics and I haven't looked at it lately. So don't quote me and I'm not a lawyer. So don't, 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 but there is a new law for marketplaces um, such as Amazon in particular that um, they, under this law, have to have more information about their um, and, and have to record some information about their uh, sellers know your customer kind of thing, like in the financial markets, but it does require some level of that really to deal with exactly this issue in the, in the marketplace context. Um, you know, yeah. in, in social media context where there's like defamation, it's a little trickier, but also in some sense, I think it's okay. Uh, you know, if we, you know, anonymous speech is kind of an important feature under the first amendment and allowing people to speak, uh, is important. And in many cases, if you really need to track down someone who is actually being defamatory, there are ways to track down people um, that it is a little bit more complex and takes a few steps and and some effort is maybe not a bad thing to protect our anonymity. 
Um, and so, you know, there is, there is that sort of, you know, issue around 230 in that, in, in those cases, but, but generally speaking, you know, the idea that 230, because of that, that sort of loophole that if you don't know who the person is, who's being defamatory, that it is enabling sort of like mass defamation doesn't really seem supported by the facts. Like, Yes, there are sort of lots of of cranks online and trolls who will spew nonsense, but you know, they're not having much of an impact in most cases. Um, and you know, the the real risk is is fairly minimal. Well, and I would think when presented with us maybe a subpoena, most platforms would provide right any anonymized data anyway, or could be compelled to provide it. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the situation and, and depending yeah. on the platform, you know, a lot of them will consider, will you know, some of them will just hand it over. There are plenty of platforms that will hand it over on, on receipt of a subpoena. Um, others will sort of, you know, alert the user and allow them to try and quash the subpoena. Um, in some cases, platforms will fight back if they think that it is an abusive subpoena. Um, you know, uh, pre-Elon Twitter was actually one of the most active in doing this, where they would receive questionable subpoenas all the time to try and unmask users for claims of defamation or claims of IP infringement that were really not, that were clearly just trying to unmask somebody hmm. um, that, that they didn't like. And, and Twitter used to go and fight those in court, which was something that I actually appreciated about the old legal. Yeah. Well, but it's interesting, right? Cause in, in one part of it, it's like the platform is not the decision maker, but in many ways they are the arbiter and, you're now you're now they're in a situation where they have to have expertise to decipher, you know, yeah, um, uh, on you know, fake subpoenas versus real. Yes. Subpo- I mean, like, it, it, you know, it's sort of like, even though you're not necessarily responsible for whatever the final outcome is, um, yeah. you're all of a sudden a huge part of this process. Yeah. And, you know, that really, you know, ha- that change sort of happened. You know, I think early on, most companies were just would just respond to any subpoena. Um, yeah. And companies began to realize how that process was being abused. And, and you know, you said like fake subpoenas. And, and the incredible thing was that there were, you know, there are cases of legitimately like there, there are some that are real subpoenas, but abusively filed and, and for, for misleading purposes. Sure. There are also yeah. like literally faked ones. I mean, there we have, we, we had written a few stories over the years about, um, you know, questionable, they were often like, frame themselves as reputation management companies who would literally fake lawsuits. They would file a fake lawsuit against a, um, you know, anonymous John Doe, then have someone show up, claim I am that John Doe and I am settling this case, you know, (laughs) with, with a settlement agreement saying I agree to take down this content. Then they would get that signed off on by the judge they would then send that that you know completely made up ruling to the company and say, "Here's a court settlement saying that they've agreed to take down this content. Now take down that content." Uh, wow. Sir, don't 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 do that. <laughs> that's very illegal. Uh, and that's somebody crazy. Went to jail for doing that. Yeah, it's that is the most insane thing. Talk about <laughs> sort of Machiavellian. Like this was a yeah. well thought through plan. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, wow. and you know, it, it, it went on for a while until somebody actually noticed it. And a couple of lawyers really tracked it down and, you know, and it, it's done in such a way that it's, it's not only like devious, but also pretty hidden. It would be sort of tough to discover that if you weren't really looking sure. for it. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, that, that was a huge problem, but that part, things like that caused a lot of these companies to realize like, we need to be, we need to look more closely if these things are coming in and these demands are coming in, we have to be much more careful about the legitimacy of them. You know, not everybody. And again, like some of them are going to slip through, but. Should all platforms behave and be treated the same under this umbrella of safe harbor, we'll call it, or, or um, is section two, three? Because I think about platforms like Amazon, mm-hmm. you know, versus a Twitter, completely different places. Yeah. You know, I, I do think, right, obviously for, for some other laws and, and other issues, I think it's it's appropriate to treat them differently. But I think 230, it makes sense for across the board for, for both of them. 
uh, and for, you know, for a whole bunch of sites, you know, 230 is specific to the speech element, right? It, it's really right. focused on, on who is, who is providing the speech and therefore who is, who is liable for that speech. And so it creates this very clear delineation, um, you know, about, about whose speech is at issue. And so, you know, there, where it gets more complicated is where, when you start getting to that fuzzy border of what is speech and what is conduct. And when you're, when you start talking about commerce, you know, where does the speech part end and where does the commerce part begin? Um, and that gets a little bit more complex, but overall, I think 230 is, is very well structured for handling the speech side of it. Right. For handling the speech side of it. I think that was one of the things that I thought was interesting about this recent article because it, it really wasn't about speech, right? The issue at hand was really more about commerce and, and the products yeah. that were being sold and who has liability for this right. product being available. But, you know, I guess they can debate whether the product should be there or not. But to me, it That's- doesn't seem sustainable to expect someone like Amazon to look at millions and millions of products and say, we know every dangerous scenario with which this product could be used. I mean, that just doesn't exactly. seem reasonable, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 really, you know, where it did come down to the speech issue in the end, which is, you know, it's partly in sort of how this lawsuit was written to sort of try and get around some of these issues. It really was the speech at issue because it was it was filed as a negligence lawsuit um, and and arguing that you know Amazon was negligent in 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 offering it up, and so you know what the court looked at was you know what does it take to be negligent, and and in this context it needs you know the company to be misrepresenting something or like suggesting it's safe when it's not, like that is a a negligence kind of thing. Um, but here you know they what the court noted was that you know. The, the speech was all pretty accurate, right? There was no underlying, there was nothing right. in there that said that this was safe and you should ingest it. In fact, it had warnings against it. So there was nothing right. misleading about it. Um, you know, the real, it, what, it, what it came down to was the real complaint was that the, the plaintiffs and the lawyers in the case felt that Amazon shouldn't be selling that product at all. Right. But that's, that's a different issue than, than some, right. you know, they're negligent in selling it. Um, yeah. And so, but, but the underlying point is exactly true. And, and, and that, that's why that, that you made that that's why section 230 is so important when you have thousands, millions, you know, uh, of, of pieces of content or things for sale, there is no possible way that you could know all of the risks associated with any, with anything or whether or not something is illegal, you know, in the social media space, whether or not something is defamatory, you can't prejudge all of that and review everything and say, this is defamatory, therefore we shouldn't allow this tweet. Um, in the same way that you can't look over everything on Amazon and say, this product is clearly illegal or problematic or dangerous, and therefore we, sh- we can't allow it ahead of time. Um, and so, you know, 230 says we can't hold the platform liable for, for allowing those things. So now we're going to play sort of devil's advocate against that exact point, because we know that platforms are able to do it in certain cases, right? So if Amazon can keep firearms off their platform and Facebook can keep, you know, some other uh, child pornography off their platform, um, they are proactively taking steps, I think, to, to keep those things off. Um, so that might be the the counterpoint that some would make is look if they can do it for those things they can do it for other yep. things. Yep. And 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 actually section 230 addresses that. And in fact section 230 was sort of written mm-hmm. in in particular to address that very point which is that the the case that that brought about section 230 pre section 230 was a situation where there was like a you know a, a court case for defamation and part of what was argued and the judge agreed to in the case was that because the website in this case it was Prodigy, an early internet service, moderated forums and pulled down some content. Because they left up some other content, therefore they had to be liable for that. And Section 230 was a direct response to that because they said, if we say, if we say that's true, then that creates very, very bad incentives. Because yeah. what the incentives then are are either take down absolutely nothing, 
Because as soon as you start taking down anything, you become liable for the stuff that you left up. And therefore, like the easiest way to handle that is like, okay, now we allow everything because like we're only getting in trouble if we take down some things. So saying like, no, 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 you won't be liable for that allows the companies to then say, oh, wait, 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 we want to take down, we, we don't want to sell firearms or we don't want to to host, you know, CSAM content, um, which, you know, is illegal. And there's a whole bunch of other issues there, but like, you know, it allows them to to do that, that effort and not get blamed for making a mistake. Right. Yeah. Because then the, the other incentive situation that you have, there's like, if you're going to get blamed for any mistake you make, you're going to go way too hard in the other direction and say, we're only going to allow things on the site after they've gone through this extensive review and careful review. And then you have a case where like, you know, imagine Amazon had to do that where they had to like, you know, get a, a copy mm-hmm. of every product that's being sold and test it out. You know, Amazon is a lot smaller. It's impossible for most buyers. I'm sure that the the cost to to sell anything on Amazon goes way up because it would have you'd have to send your products to Amazon to review and test and you know they might send it back and say we can't sell this or whatever. You know, you would have a very very different kind of internet. So 230 is this sort of like really nice middle ground that says like yes, you can take down stuff. You can make decisions and say like we don't want this on our platform. And you don't get liable for the stuff that you left up. And that gives you the incentive to actually look around and say, like, there are certain categories of products that we don't want, certain categories of products that we're going to stop and that we're going to proactively police. Um, but we're not going to get blamed for the stuff that we don't do that on. So I actually think yeah. Section 230 really does directly address that question. That was a great way of explaining it. <laughs> um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said you were insightful and reasonable. <laughs> And I have to agree um, <laughs> because that actually made complete sense to me. And I'll tell you, not a lot does. Um, but, you know, your 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 point was great, which is um, the middle ground is the right place to be. And so this enables us to take a, a middle of the road approach. Right. It and also you go too far in either direction and, and, and you're, yeah. you're no longer you're either stifling innovation and you're crushing the Internet or you're basically creating, you know, a censorship state. Uh, where everything is removed in mass, uh, and neither one of those scenarios sounds good. And 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 the other thing that the two thirty does honestly that is really important is that it it also allows the companies to change and to modify and and experiment because you know and, and this is something that I keep trying to get across and is sometimes difficult for people to understand is that like the the bad actors the real bad actors who are trying to do nefarious things in in all sorts of different ways are constantly adjusting and they're constantly changing. And if you want to fight that, you know, as like a trust and safety team or whatever, you have to change. You have to constantly be monitoring what's going on and making changes in in your own strategies as well. And 230 allows that to happen without creating or increasing liability, where if you didn't have 230, every change that you make could then you could then get sued over because they'll say it's unreasonable or that particular change was negligent in some way. It just creates this like opening for massive lawsuits. And so it makes it much harder for you as a platform to actually police these things. Whereas 230 says like you can you can experiment and change. And that also means that different platforms can experiment with different ways of handling this. And other platforms can learn from that and experiment as well. And so you get, you know, a lot more advancement, I think, in the process of, you know, brand safety, trust and safety, whatever you want to call it. Um, because they can adjust and, and make changes over time, thanks to 230 saying that you're not going to be liable for those particular changes. That makes a lot of sense. Like just one more, I mean, a couple more questions and then I, I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up because I know we're a little short on time today, but disinformation, that term scares me <laughs> and it's thrown around, right? I mean, every time you put on the news, there's a disinformation task force uh, yeah. This gets a lot of press coming out of COVID, right? And our government's response to COVID. Um, are we in trouble if disinformation <laughs> all of a sudden becomes, you know, uh, like which way is the pendulum going to swing on this thing? I, I worry about over censoring people's views because it's labeled as disinformation. I mean, what are your just your thoughts on that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a really tricky problem, right? I mean, there is 
you know, objectively, there are things that are are false information that is being spread. And in some cases that can be, you know, dangerous or, or increased risk. And that's something to be concerned about. But the question then is like, what, what do you do about it and how do you deal with it? And, you know, how do you avoid the sort of overcorrection in, in the other direction as well? Um, I generally don't really like the term disinformation because it, it, it's, it is really, really weighted. You know, and, yeah. and it's it's also very easy to weaponize. And there are a couple of things like I remember in in the lead up, just uh, as an example. Well, uh, well, I'll do. Well, let me say something else. Actually, the, the um, there was there was actually a really great article by this reporter Joe Bernstein um, that looked into disinformation and like research on disinformation and misinformation that I think is just great for anyone who's thinking about this subject because it kind of highlights that you know the platforms that are most blamed for disinformation such as facebook um Mm -hmm. have you know a weird somewhat twisted incentive to play up that narrative because it's effectively saying the content on our platform is so powerful it can change minds and cause people to believe things, which is a great thing when they're talking to their advertisers and they want to sell them on advertising on Facebook. Um, and, you know. Wow, Joe, that's a fascinating perspective that most people yeah, have, are not thinking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Joe went through the research and said, you know, there's very little proof that that, you know, disinformation is is as powerful as people believe it to be. That's not to say that there aren't, you know, false stories that make the rounds sure. and there aren't people who who fall into deep rabbit holes of complete nonsense in often dangerous ways. That is obviously true. That is obviously in existence. But, you know, there are very, very large questions about who it impacts and how and how widely and and what the what the larger aspect of it of it is. And so, you know, I think where we are right now is the world is sort of learning how to live in a space where everybody can can communicate with everybody because we've yeah. never had that before you know we've had historically local communications and then you would have slightly more distance communication but very limited very gate you know gatekeepered uh in terms of who could actually make use of of the you know more broadcast speech then we began to have like point to point communications where you could have telephone, you know, across larger and larger distances. But this is the, you know, over the last 20, 25, 30 years this is the first time we've ever had a, a, a time when everybody can speak to everybody. Right. Yeah. And we as a society don't have the tools or the training or the mental capacity, frankly, to deal with that, that shift in the world. And, I would like to believe that as society itself evolves, we will begin to learn how to deal with that reality. Um, yeah. There are always there are always going to be people who are pushing nonsense, and there are always going to be people who tell false stories and do so for a variety of reasons. Whether it is that they truly believe it, whether it is they're trying to profit from it, whether it is they're you know who knows, right? There are all sorts of reasons for that. You know, we're still reaching the stage where we figure out how we deal with that on a on a global scale. Again, like so much of this discussion really comes back to scale. Like, wow, scale's a real problem in all sorts of yeah. contexts, you know. Um yep. and you know, but it is something that society has to deal with. But I think the focus on disinformation as the problem itself is is misguided. And it, it's really a symptom of like the world figuring out how how everybody can talk to everybody. And so yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I, th- I I really do. I think most people think about, you know, that issue of disinformation and feel like it's a nothing burger. Mm-hmm. You know, they they to, to sort of echo, I think, the sentiment of the article that you referenced, like we don't really know, like people really fall for this. Like, does this really matter? Right. Like, does, how much does it really right. matter? Um, right. And I think you're right. I, I, I kind of feel like in many ways, the media intensifies the message, which then makes it feel much more important yes. and impactful than it really is. But the reality is, there's billions of people a day sharing information online, you know, billions of times every minute. 
um, and and doing it uh, fine, right, successfully yeah. um, yes. and without negative consequences. Um, yeah, it's super interesting uh, to me. And so, do you think? Last question, and then I promise I'll let you go. Two thirty. Keep it as is. Do you think, you know, con- is Congress going to mess this thing up because they're going to, you know, poke around or they're going to take a few pieces of legislation and all of a sudden decide they have a better way of doing this? Um, yeah. So should it stay the same? And even if we want it to, will they screw it up anyway? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the answer to qu- both questions is probably yes. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. it's. 2.30, I think, honestly, despite all the criticism that it gets, I think has been one of the most effective, useful, powerful, successful laws that that Congress has passed in the last 30 years. Um, it it like, you know, if you if you understand it and most people don't, if you understand it and understand the context in which it has played out and look at the lawsuits in which it has been a part of, um, it has been a phenomenal tool in enabling the internet that we have today, enabling all of the things that we like about the internet today. There are some concerns about that. It has also enabled some of the things that we dislike about the internet today, but it's very difficult to figure out a way to get rid of those without undermining all of the, the, the good stuff that the internet has brought. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean that Congress isn't going to try. They're absolutely trying. They've been trying for a couple of years. Uh, and, you know, I am completely open. I have an open mind that somebody could present to me a better solution than 230. I have not seen it. Everything that I've seen, I think, creates massive problems, often because they don't understand the interplay of all of these things and and has sort of how 230 really works. And they have a very, very confused interpretation of what they think 230 is and what they think removing it or changing it would do. And what they don't realize is that mostly what they're doing would be enabling uh, a ridiculous number of very, very questionable lawsuits that just lead to companies really backing off uh, allowing certain things that, that most people find really useful and services that, that people actually love that would really be limited by most of the pr- uh, proposed changes to 230. Well said. Mike, this has been great. I really appreciate you spending all this time with us. Uh, I think Zuckerberg's right. I think you're insightful and <laughs> and thoughtful. Anyone who's not going to Tector and reading, you know, your insightful pieces, I think is is definitely missing something. Um, if they are if they care about these issues, and especially if they make their living in technology, quite honestly, it's it's a it's a must read. So, I really appreciate you spending the time. And uh, again, anyone can follow us on uh, iTunes, on Google, anywhere you get your major podcasts. We're owning the buy box. And this has been Mike Masnick, the founder of TechDirt. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a really fun discussion. Awesome. Take care, Mike. Cool. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.